HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning from Heritage Radio Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and welcome to The Line. Today, my guest is Elise Kornack, the chef and co-owner of Take Root. Located in Brooklyn, Take Root is a 12-seat tasting menu restaurant that Elise runs with her wife, Anna, and they are the only two employees of that restaurant. Take Root and Chef Kornack have received exceptional praise. The restaurant has received a Michelin star for three years running, and it won Esquire's Best New Restaurant in America 2014. Chef Kornack has been a semi-finalist for the James Beard Rising Star Chef Award for the last three years. She was named to the 50 Most Influential People in Brooklyn by Brooklyn Magazine, and New York Times food critic Adam Platt selected her as one of the five Best New Chefs of 2015. Elise, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start off with the big, the elephant in the room, the big question. Uh, Your closing take root. Uh, Why close now? What is the motivation behind uh, uh, closing your acclaimed restaurant? So um, when we started take root, we kind of always saw it as a project, um, you know, in that it was never going to last forever. And that was never really what we wanted or ever our intention. Um, But the end point also was very unclear. Um, my wife and I kind of take notes from our life and just kind of let things drive themselves without making too much of a decision. And we had been looking to move upstate for the past couple of years and kind of casually house hunting here and there as we rented a place and decided in our minds, like when the house goes through, we'll try to figure out what's going on with Take Root at that time. But um, it actually happened that our house closed this month and our lease is up this month. And we were like, this is just the perfect time. Everything fell into place. We're going out in a really great note. We feel really positive about the restaurant, you know, the seats are always filled. We have nothing to worry about. So this is a great time to go out versus being pushed out because of rent or, you know, because it's not working. So we felt like, why not go out on top versus, you know, go out 
in a place that is, you know, kind of hard. And I'm sure that people are wondering that, uh, that either haven't yet had the opportunity to get to the restaurant uh, and people that follow your career, is there a plan to take, take root uh, upstate, up north? Are you going to do the same thing, live above the restaurant and yeah. cook downstairs? Um, well, we actually live around the corner, but it's close enough either way. But the, um, the, the concept of take root is, is done, in our opinion. Um, there, for a lot of reasons, we, we believe that we've done everything we can with this kind of idea, with, you know, with the name, with everything in that, what it embodies. Um, certainly the spirit of us and the spirit of how we run a restaurant um, will come with us, but Take Root itself will definitely be um, no longer. Um, and I don't think we'll be kind of replicating the same kind of concept in the future either. Um, this kind of style of dining, um, you know, was really wonderful for the past five years, but we think it's kind of dying out. It's kind of um, allure even though, you know, people love what they get to experience at Take Root and other restaurants similarly. Um, I think that kind of formal tasting menu situation um, is a little bit less accessible than I want to be for my next uh, set of clients. So this isn't like an LCD sound system thing? You're not like coming back in one year no. and, and reopening in no. a new location in Brooklyn? No, no, no 2.0 Take Root for sure. So this is a, a different path than a lot of restaurateurs and chefs take because the Brooklyn and New York real estate market tends to basically force people out or people get bored and they don't come to your restaurant anymore. And a variety of other factors can contribute to the sort of unfortunate demise of many beloved places. So uh, how does it make you feel to, beyond being in control of your own destiny, to see a finite date with your wife on the project that you've invested so many years of your life in? Is, Is there any bittersweet notion or are you relieved or what's the general feeling? Um, you know, it depends on the day today. I'm feeling psyched. Um, I'm really excited about what's coming next. Um, we're, we've been longing to get into nature and out of the city for a long time. So energetically, spiritually, emotionally, I'm feeling very, a lot of relief. Um, I think with any creative project, um, similar to a relationship that, you know, kind of ends mutually, you know, you love the person still, but you know, it's not right for you anymore. It's kind of like that. So I feel like I'm ready to let go, but you know, there's obviously going to be some bittersweet kind of um, notion when we actually do hand over the keys to the next person thinking, okay, well, this is this space that I pour all love into is no longer mine. But I think that the creative project is so far done in my mind that I feel like I've already let go of that. So I'm feeling good about it. You've referred to it several times now as a project and a creative endeavor. Yeah. And I know that you went to art school yeah. for yeah. that was your what you pursued in college and your plates, the construction of them are very precise, very beautiful. Did you, you. Did you originally perceive take root as did it evolve over time or was it always going to be a a tasting menu when you found the space i'm curious about sort of the artistic vision that funnels into take root and how the menus uh were constructed beyond just a seasonal aspect of them well in in part i know this is kind of odd to think of it this way, but the space itself kind of dictated what we were able to do in it. So we don't really have any closets. We don't have a walk-in. We only have one and a half refrigerator. So every single week, everything is started from ground up. So um, that itself kind of dictated, you know, how we were going to run it, when we could be open, what kinds of products we can have in-house. Like, I mean, for example, the menu is very heavily vegetable forward. Um, that's been going on for years, not just since the trend. Partially for us, it was because I don't have proper storage for fish and meat to last more than a couple of days. Um, I don't have enough room in my refrigerators to do that. Um, and so we started to kind of 
talk amongst each other. I mean, Anna handles the wine list. I handle the food. And we were like, okay, what is the direction we want to take this and how can we handle it? And what kind of do we want to accomplish? And the first two things we wanted to work on was one, can we own a restaurant and have a life? Can we do this? Can we like prove that it's possible to take an unorthodox path and, but also, you know, kind of achieve mainstream, you know, notoriety in a, in a way. Um, and we feel like we succeeded in that notion. And then the second was, can we create an exciting menu in a format that's kind of getting old? I think a little bit tasting menus are feeling a little bit dated to us, even as diners, but how can we keep it alive? And so um, we we kind of did that by working with the wine list and the food, um, constantly changing it um, by seasonally, which is a lot for, you know, R&D in terms of a tasting menu or style, um, but also kind of taking note of what our customers like and didn't like in the same way you would in an a la carte restaurant. Like if things aren't getting the same response that another course is, it's like, okay, we have to shift it and move it. And being okay with um, not sticking to our creative vision so intensely, but letting our customers have a little input where they don't, you know, typically in a tasting menu in that sense. I wanna. Uh, I want. I'm gonna ask you a couple questions about more specific about the menu, but I yeah. want to focus on the sort of the business side and the relationship mm-hmm. that you share with your wife, which is the challenges of having only two people work at the restaurant. Uh, after the press started rolling in, and I imagine bookings piled up yeah. for months and months <laughs> in advance, was there ever a discussion of uh, hiring a prep cook, hiring another set of hands to drop plates? Because you know, somebody out there is probably thinking whatever it's 12 people a night yeah. but you're putting out <laughs> yeah. multiple yeah. courses and timing plates with yeah. heat and cold yeah. is tricky so for with sure, with sure. two people well you only have two hands yeah. so four plates four plates yeah. it's three drops yeah. for every single course yeah. right and you didn't do anything family style no 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 so everything was plated yeah. right so i cook plate and serve 144 plates in the evening um every we we did talk multiple times throughout the course of take root about hiring people and at each time it was driven for a different reason you know some reasons it was to to relieve prep uh weight sometimes it was relieving the dropping of the plates weight sometimes it was just energetically we felt like we couldn't take on um the you know the experience with just the customers as just the two of us because we were married but each time it came down to the same thing i mean we've created a dance in a language that only the two of us can understand. And it sounds kind of silly, but you know, anyone who's listening who's been in a relationship knows that there's a way to communicate with your person that kind of is like different than the way you communicate with anybody else. And then it was even like just magnified because we also worked together and alone. So we had this, you know, in sync way of moving that like we knew that if we just dropped anybody into it, first of all, it would change up how it felt for us, but also it would change the restaurant. I mean, it'd be a whole different restaurant because the press and the, you know, the stories that were written about us were about that creative uh, situation with just the two of us. And that was the story. And so we'd be changing the story. It'd be a whole new book. So the way we felt was we were dedicated to following it through. And we're really grateful that we did because we learned a lot about diners, a lot about people. And, you know, I wash my own dishes. I run the tables. I do So I do everything. And so having my hands in all those things can be overwhelming, but it's also really educational and knowing, you know, what do people require? You know, what is it like to stand there and talk to somebody while they're eating your food? I mean, that's incredibly rare for a chef. It's like being an artist and standing in a gallery and watching people look at your work. And so it can be hard sometimes, but for the most part, it's it, you really learn a lot about how people take it in. Yeah, there's nowhere to hide. I mean, yeah. I know that you started it off as a dinner party and it's yeah. evolved. And most tasting menus are, even in a right a couple hundred feet from us at Blanca, there's exactly. a team there. It's a fairly large kitchen. There's a bit of a, you can distance yourself mm-hmm. from the people that are dining. Mm-hmm. But they're pretty much coming into your home. And since it's just you and your wife, the sort of ability to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. is so apparent, both as the diner and as the the chef and the the owner. I'm curious if that ever became 
problematic and if it was uh if if that ever almost turned you off to the prospect of having to be so close professionally and personally and then your diners are they're really like they're intimately involved in oh, your yeah. in your life so sure. closely, you know. For sure. I mean, there was there have been you know countless moments of of doubt in whether I could emotionally withstand the interactions anymore because, you know, I think um, one thing to note is that most chefs at, that reach a certain level of you know. Um, I, I, I hate to keep using the word notoriety, but once people understand who you are, know your face, and can associate it with your restaurant, you become if you become accessible to people, you kind of lose the allure of what that is. And we all know that it's not we're not rock stars by any means, but there does have that kind of the chef behind the helm kind of feeling. And once you come out and you're interacting with people, you lose that level of kind of authority to them. And that not that you want to be above your diners by any means, but once you become accessible and you're eye to eye, and they can ask you questions, they can break you down a little bit, and it can start to become like, oh, we're we're this is too close. We're not friends. Like, remember, there's a business transaction here. You're paying for this. And for most of the time, that's really wonderful. And those people that have crossed that boundary have been really special in our lives and they've become loyal regulars. But some people, you know, don't know the line. You know, the social cues, they miss out on that and asking questions that are really personal about, you know, our finances or how we pay rent. And that's a little much. But, you know, we we learned ways to answer it and we kind of had uh, ways of handling those kinds of situations. And each of us handled them very differently. Um, I do think the challenge was putting our relationship out there sometimes in being, you know, gay and, and women and young. And there was there was definitely some people that didn't digest it maybe the way that we found respectful. But, um, you know, we got through it and it was rare. So it wasn't too bad. So. Do you have anything that you can share about upstate plans at all or is it super up in the air right now? It's pretty up in the air, actually. Um, I have – we're definitely going to be taking the summer off. We have to move um, both the restaurant You bought and a house somewhere upstate. We did. We so did you're, you're full-time yes. out of the city now. Very soon. I mean in the next yeah, month Yeah, in the next two months, yeah. Um, we're going to take a couple months to move everything because we have an apartment and the restaurant to get up there. Um, and then I'm going to garden and, and landscape and, and hang out for the summer and kind of let the creative juices realign. Um, and then, you know, probably come the fall, we'll begin to set some stone work down in terms of what we want to do and um, – kind of focus the ideas because I have like about 10 million and I need to find one that's going to work. Um, and we have some cool opportunities on the horizon, um, none of which terribly I can talk about at this point. But, you know, definitely a restaurant is going to happen at some point. Um, and, you know, maybe some other projects here and there throughout the time I'm getting ready for that. So let just indulge me in this fantasy scenario mm-hmm. for one second, which is an investor presents you with a blank check and yes. says, uh, take root or the new incarnation of yeah, it. Sorry, yeah. not take root 2.0, yeah. but uh, Elise, here's a blank check. Um, I want you to open up a 40-seat restaurant in Brooklyn that's not a tasting menu, yeah. but is your style of, of food, and you can do whatever you want. It can look like whatever you want. You'll have a good work-life balance. Do you think that – are you necessarily – are you done right now with being in a restaurant in a traditional sense of the no, word? No, not at all. I mean, I'm open to all things. I mean, we've had some people come to us with 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 ideas exactly exactly like that basically mm-hmm. and um, knowing that you know our reputation and our kind of style of doing things has um, could be very exciting in a, in a more official way you know um, I know that it, we could we would fit wonderfully in a lot of different areas of Brooklyn doing restaurants very similar to a 40c restaurant and I think that there is a prospect for that um, definitely in the future even in the near future is this for us at this time we just need to figure out you know what is the balance we want to have with upstate and here first are we keeping a place in the city 
and how are we going to do that? Um, and I know that we've decided we want to owe ourselves a few months to feel that out before we make a decision. But Brooklyn is not out. Absolutely not. And Upstate is totally not in or out. It's everything's a, everything's an option at this point. I feel like sky's the limit. And we're really excited about being in that position um, because, you know, we feel like we have, you know, kind of endless opportunities, but it's almost like a little overwhelming at this point. It's like when you look at like um, California Pizza Kitchen menu or something like that, and you're staring at it or, you know, the Cheesecake Factory, and you're like, I can't eat here because I can't choose what I want to eat. You have a lot of things that you can choose from, but also you want to make sure that you make the right choice on the next opportunity, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, I want to go back to a couple years ago. Where were you when you heard that you got a Michelin star? Besides it being important, for driving business, how does it make you feel to be uh, grouped amongst, you know, those chefs that are Michelin starred chefs? And, um, and what did you do sort of immediately after hearing that? So I was... I remember getting an email like a few months prior about they needed like our information. And so at, at that point, my wife was kind of like, does this like mean we're getting a Michelin star? Like, I don't really know. I've never received one. So we were kind of like starting to think that it's possible we were going to get one. When is it going to happen? Who knows? And then unfortunately, the first year we got ours, Eater blew the cover and put it up on there. And uh-huh. so we didn't get to feel the experience of getting the phone call. Still to this day, I'm a little pissed about that. But um, and I think it was a little uncool because that's like a really special moment in chef's lives. I think you, they should have been a little bit more respectful about that. But um, so we saw it. Our friend saw it on Eater and texted us before. So it was a little bit anticlimactic when they called. But my wife and I were actually at Take Root and I was like scrubbing a bottom of a pot and she was like restocking the wine list. We were laughing. We we're like, well, this is this is it. How glamorous. Yeah, how glamorous. Um, but it was fun. I mean, we felt really humbled and extremely honored to be in the company of the people who have Michelin stars. Um and it, it's it's still a little bit mind blowing that we've been able to you know achieve something like that in a place like Take Root. But we're really grateful that Michelin um, felt that we were worthy of it, and also that they were looking out of the box a little bit, and that they were looking to be a little bit more progressive in the places they were granting the stars to. So we feel like it's pretty cool that they did that. Yeah, because definitely when people think Michelin, they think fine dining and they think tasting menus, but there is nothing really traditional about your space. I haven't been there, but obviously I've seen it and I've I've read a lot about it. Um, When you were uh, doing the the dinners at your apartment and Mm -hmm. doing those tasting menus, Mm -hmm. were they uh, family style? Were they heavily plated? What what originally, when you originally left your Mm -hmm. more traditional restaurant career being the sous chef, what did you what did it start off being in your apartment well we moved to prospect heights and um the place we got had this massive garden, like massive, massive, huge place. And we were like, uh, we got to like start gardening, get this place up in order because it was like covered in weeds. And once we did, we found that there was like this beautiful space that we wanted to, in, you know, share with people. So we started doing these, the dinner parties and they were plated. There was no family style. Everything was. And it was like five courses at that time, I think, for like 60 bucks maybe or something. Um and then after a while, our upstairs neighbor got in, went insane and decided that we, it was illegal and wrote us this crazy letter from her lawyer that we needed to stop. And so we were like, okay, we got to move out of here. Mm-hmm. So we moved uh, out of that apartment and, uh, well, we actually first looked for a, a commercial location and found one in Cobble Hill where Take Root is. And at that point, we had no idea what we wanted to do in it. We just knew we needed it. Um, and so once we started renovating and getting used to what we wanted to do, I mean, the ideas just kind of snowballed from there. But the intention was always to do a tasting menu and always to aim for it to be like, you know, semi-fine dining and refined. Let's uh, move back to some of your earlier cooking careers. I'm curious how you got into cooking. Did you uh, 
uh, start cooking in New York, or I don't even know where you're from. So tell me sort of where you grew up and how you got involved in working in Aquavit and Spotted Pig. For sure. So um, I'm from, my family lives just outside Boston. And for the past 35 years, they've owned a house on Nantucket Island. Um, And so I grew up going there in the summers and when I was younger, even more than that. Um, And, you know, that has a heavy influence on my cooking style, kind of the old New England island life. Um, But I went to Bates College in Maine. I was, you know, an art and visual culture major. Um, And I had always had food in my blood. My mom taught cooking for a number of years. She did tours of the North End when she was, you know, in her 20s and 30s. And so, like, this has always been my mom's 100% Italian and food is like the center of our you know, life for the most part. Um, but I didn't really know it was a fully, you know, viable option as a career for a long time. I mean, for a woman, you know, 15 years ago, that wasn't really like the first choice of a career by any means. And so I just did it as a hobby. And then through college, like second, second, second uh, year in college, we get to go away for six months. It Bates, that's how it's part of it. And you can either do an internship or travel or whatever, but it's like part of your credits. And I asked if I could go work in a restaurant. They were like, no, there's no credit that that's going to give you. So, <laughs> but I fought for it and I was like, this is going to be important. I can turn it into something else. And, um, I went to a restaurant on Nantucket and I said, can I work here? And they said, no, I went back to the house and got my mom's like old knife and I came back and I begged them and they were like, all right, listen, you can come in and like see what it's like, just like hit the garmage station. And I did, and they gave me a job and then, you know, kind of the rest was history. I didn't want to go back to college, but my dad, you know, insisted I finish it out. Um, and then, the day after graduation, I got back on the ferry and went back to restaurants in Nantucket. I worked there full year, like all season during the winter too, until I moved to New York. So I was just persistent. I knew that's what I wanted to do, but wasn't sure how to do it in the beginning because what's Nantucket restaurant life like? Is it pretty much? Is it like a fish and chips seared scallops type of deal, or is it is it a wide breadth of restaurants? No, no. That... I mean now it's it's pretty incredible. There's a lot of good stuff going on. Um, uh, I was working at Straight Wharf, which is a great restaurant uh, and owned by a husband and wife team. Um, they used to work in some really killer restaurants in Boston back in the, the 90s. Um, but they, um, you know, it's influenced, you know, a lot by old New England and kind of Native American culture. You know, there's, you know, huge cranberry bonds on the island. There's lots of clams, oysters. So there is a lot of seafood for sure. But there is also a refinement. There's some beautiful farms on there now. Um, everything is grown on the island for the most part. There's some people out there that are starting to get livestock farms out there, which is pretty new because it took a while for the island to approve of it. So no, the food is very progressive. It's really beautiful. Um, and the restaurants there, what's so great about it in the culture is that people get to go there for the summer. You know, chefs from all over. I mean, our kitchen in all the restaurants, we're all chefs from New York, line cooks from New York, coming in to take a summer off, in quotes, you know, because their days off, they got to go to the beach. But the days they're working, they work really hard from April till October, like nonstop. And that's the height of the season. And then it gets to be quiet during the winter. So I've always craved the idea of the on and off feeling versus, you know, city life, which is just a constant. Um, So it's pretty special to work in island or resort areas, I think. Is there any chance we're going to see you cooking on Nantucket during your It's totally possible, actually. Last summer, we had a few options of doing that. Um, I've definitely thought about doing a pop-up on Nantucket for like a week. It would be kind of magical to be by your family and go back to your origins in a way. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely um, been an idea that we've had for a while and just how how it's going to manifest, not sure yet. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us when we come back more with Elise Kornack from Take Root.
This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Elise Kornack. She is the chef and co-owner of the critically acclaimed uh, 12-seat tasting menu restaurant Take Root, located in Brooklyn, which her and her wife will be closing very soon, and they will be moving upstate and taking some time off. We've been talking about a lot about Take Root, but I want to talk about your early cooking career in New York. Uh, you worked at Aquavit. And you also worked at Spotted Pig. I would love to hear about those kitchens, very different styles Mm -hmm. of cuisine. And I'm curious about the leadership styles as well. I I envision, uh, since Spotted Pig is more slightly casual fare, that the kitchens could be different. Can you illuminate what working in both of those kitchens were like? What was... What was different? What did you enjoy? Yeah, definitely. Um, In 2009, I tried to... um I staged at Aquavit to get a job. I found out that they had an opening, and at the time, um, their Aquavit cookbook was in the kitchen I was working in Nantucket, and it was like one of the only cookbooks in the office. So I remember knowing about it, and I was like, oh, "Cool, I want to check that place out." And I saw online that they had an opening, so I went, and I, you know, was really like thrown right into line at that time. I mean, going from just like, you know, I was like 22 years old, you know, kitchens in Nantucket to being thrown into like a Michelin star restaurant on the line. I was a little bit overwhelmed, but I like just totally rocked it and loved it and had the opportunity to work there. But then I was, you know, really thinking it through and felt like I wanted to get my ass kicked more in like a high paced environment first, because I felt like that was going to be something that was going to set a good foundation. So I started to look around and, um, the spotted pig had an available opening. And so I went and staged there. Um, and at that time I ended up taking the job of the spotted pig instead. So, um, that kitchen I found was the most perfect foundation for me, my fitting for my personality. I mean, it's fast paced, it was high energy, a lot of covers, really fun group in the kitchen. Um, the whole vibe of the restaurant, I mean, everyone worked as a unit, the front of house, back of house, everyone was always interacting. Everyone was always hanging out off, you know, off shift and on shift. People felt like it was really, you know, working together. Um, and I liked that about it. I felt like it was really fun. Um, the kitchen was nicely split between male and female. That that's not, you know, terribly important, but it was to me at that time. And it was led by obviously a female chef. So a that female was pretty CDC. Cool. Yeah. And a, fe- a well, April yeah. is the head chef, but then yeah. a female CDC as well. Well, at, that time, um, or at no? the time, Nate, uh, was the CDC and then it got passed over to, to, um, a woman as well. So it was kind of mixed, but the sous chefs were all women. And mm-hmm. at the time it was just a really like 
even split front of house back of house it felt really good um and you know i was young and my you know i had a new girlfriend and she was in the west village and you know staying out late and so it was really fun i mean i felt like the adrenaline was really in that kitchen all the time and you know april's food is always charged with so much acid and salt and like love and so it was just like everything i needed at that time in my life so i was really psyched about it and that restaurant really is sort of a it's been written about countless times as the embodiment of new york during that time period it it captured a lot of what was going on it was the fancy burger evolution that started to take over. How did it influence your cooking style? I know what you've drawn from Nantucket. What did you take away from the Spotted Pig besides getting your ass kicked and realize you you could do 400 covers a night? Um, I think that what I've always, you know, kind of loved about April's cuisine and all of her restaurants, but specifically in the Pig, because I remember that the most as I worked there, is that you can have an intense, bold flavor with, like, few ingredients. And I think that that was the first thing I needed and wanted to learn as a young cook, you know, you're constantly trying to learn to edit when you're first starting out and you're putting more and more on there to create more flavor, but it's just balancing flavor that creates that harmonious, like intense blast that I think a lot of people know in her food, you know, like I said, high acid, a lot of salt, um, lots of texture. And I feel like learning that even in a simple salad that I will never forget, which was the radish salad there, balanced with Parmesan as like the salty kind of creamy nuttiness and then the basil, which was the freshness and then olive oil and lemon. Boom, that's it. But like it had every single flavor in one thing. And so I think that that was the foundation of my cooking and still is kind of looking for maximum four ingredients. Plus I can't take longer to plate than four things anyways in the, um, and just really finding the balance and not focusing on over um, doing a dish. Her food is at first glance, simple yeah. when you read a menu and never simple when you eat it. Exactly. It's uh, consistently the most satisfying meals that I've ever had. I find the Agreed. Breslin to be – I've been to the Breslin a lot more because mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. brother used to work there and my <laughs> sister-in-law uh, used to work there. But I find her restaurants to be unbelievably satisfying. Agreed, you totally. leave and you don't want more mm-hmm. and you weren't left with the idea that you – that's that you paid too much for exactly. what you're getting. And yeah. I think that as a young chef and a young business owner, I think that people aspiring to sort of follow that, that route that she's sort of perfected to a yeah. certain uh, extent. Um, so after you're at the spotted pig, which is unbelievably popular. And I would say probably has a more diverse clientele than Aquavit. For sure. Uh, you moved to Aquavit, which is on what? Fifth, it's in the 50s, yeah, right? Yeah. we. I left Spotted Pig in a not excellent way. Um, I had some serious like family stuff going on and I had to leave like pretty abruptly. Um, and then I, my wife and I at the time was my girlfriend. We took some a month away to live on her family's property. They have 50 acres in Baltimore County. It was really beautiful to kind of like reset because we had gone through some difficulty. Um, and then I came back to the city around the holidays and Aquavit had another position open. And I thought to myself, okay, well, like maybe let's come full circle. Let's go back and check it out. At the time, the chef had moved over and the sous chef I had originally sauced with was now the chef. So it was Mark Marcus Jernmark, he's now at um, Francin and Francin, Studio Francin restaurant. Um, but at the time, you know, he had just taken over the job and it was a little bit chaotic in there. And they were trying to figure out who was going to kind of really lead and like as a sous chef and what was going to really happen. And I was like, let's get in there. Let's get in there when things are all like, you know, discombobulated and see if we can find some order. And within one week, I was promoted to sous chef alongside another friend of mine. And, um, you know, things started to fall into place a little bit. And Marcus started to find like, you know, his way as the leader and everything like really became, you know, a nice, well-oiled machine. And it was a totally different experience in Spotted Pig. So for those, I enjoyed that. For those people that don't know, Aquavit 
the type of can you describe the type of cuisine and also just highlight a couple of the flavors that you used often at Aquavit? Yeah, definitely. Um, I love that there's a lot of sour and sweet in in the the kind of approach to cooking at Aquavit. Even now, I know Emma has taken over as the chef there, and I know she's still carrying that through. Um, lots of pickling, lots of vinegar, but also really a, a balanced, you know, not overly acidic. And so I always loved that there was also always a creaminess, you know, or a fattiness coming from whether it be, you know, actually cream or, you know, a potato or something that was very creamy in nature. Um, and I've, I found that that balance is very different than the kind of balance that I found at Spotted Pig, you know, because there was a lot of, you know, Italian and Mediterranean roots in April's cooking, but Aquavit, there isn't that at all. But yet there's still this ability to find the sweet, salty, bitter, sour. I want to talk about plating because Spotted Pig, let's just call it looser in its its plating style. (laughs) It's a gastropub, if that's the right term to describe it. And then Aquavit is going to be a highly plated, a lot more focused, definitely, uh, precision cutting, meticulous herb placement, uh, take root. It's a tasting menu. Mm -hmm. A lot of your items are quite small and Mm -hmm. intricately plated. Uh, how did you, there's, you know, chefs listen to this show, food people listen to this show. How do you find your own plating style? Because it's very much people these days, before they can digest your food in yeah. reality, they're looking at the photos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that can be a double-edged sword. Yeah, people can sure. say, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. And it can set expectations very high. Right. But also, it it makes people salivate. They yeah. want to come. So how did you develop your own style? And how important was that to the fabric of the restaurant? What's very important, I would say, in that, especially nowadays, like you're saying, where social media and photos have, like, such an impact on diners. Um, But granted, the lighting in Tikkur is so dark. People are always like, I can't take a photo in here. Can I use my flash? Uh, So that's really hilarious. You're like, eat the damn thing. Yeah, I'm like, don't worry about it. But, um, you know, what it is is that Take Root, again, set the limits for me. I mean, I only have a very small amount of time between – cooking and plating and then running a plate. So that's a lot. I mean, you know, in a, in a, at the level of which we're trying to cook and the experience we're putting out, it was important to me that the food was out hot because I hate eating cold food at a tasting menu. It just bums me out so much. And that it was plated beautifully but simply. And so I, I call it, I have four strokes, which sounds very artistic, but I can move my hands four times and then that's too many after that. And so everything was originally dictated by that. How can I make something look beautiful but only move four times? So I can put four things on the plate or I can move four times, but that's it. Otherwise, it takes up too much time to plate. So that started to create this way of plating for me. And eventually it ended up being kind of my style, which is very minimalist and very simple. But, you know, using the angulations of of the ingredients or the way I cut something to create something beautiful versus adding flowers, which cost money and take time to plate. So it's not really my thing. Your art background had taught you to cook with constraints. They were like self-imposed. But well, fortunately or unfortunately, you like backed yourself into this corner of being the only person that could touch the plates. Yeah. What is a dish that you could describe to the listeners that you feel, do you have a, was there a perfect dish ever in the four years that you've executed? Were there things that maybe got super close that you repeated that, that became sort of a a very popular dish for your repeat diners that they were asking for that you feel that you can sort of talk about the the prep and the construction of it? Yeah, for sure. Um, right now we're running like some of my 
favorite dishes. And I mean, obviously within seasonality, keeping in mind, but I'm running because the last month I just figured like, why don't I run things that I really cared about or that marked, you know, a certain breakthrough in me creatively. Um, and two of those dishes are actually, um, well, the first one is, is really easy to explain. It's basically lentil, beluga lentils, and they're cooked in the style of risotto, which is pretty a delicate process because lentils can very quickly split and become overcooked and mushy. And they so, mush out, yeah. yeah. And so I created this way of cooking them in the style of risotto to make them very creamy, but keeping them very whole and kind of al dente in the way rice is. Um, and it was a delicate process in learning how to do it. And it's, it can be difficult during service to execute it if other things are going on, but it's only a scoop on a plate and it only has two other things that go with it. So it was very easy. Um, so the lentils are cooked in a broth of porcini mushroom and coffee, and that's in the risotto style. Um, and then they're topped with a lot of black truffle and there's a little bit of the cooking liquid and then a puree of salted cranberry. And this kind of came about because when you get a little bit of cranberry on your spoon or your fork at, at Thanksgiving in that moment of like, you get that acid, you get that sweet that you needed after eating like 10 bites of turkey and stuffing. So it was kind of that creating something rich with filled with umami that's simple and recognizable, but unrecognizable. And then putting something that's recognizable, but yet unrecognizable in the same way. Um, it's one of my favorite dishes. It's beautifully plated and it's very easy to plate, but it's difficult to, to get right. So I, that's kind of my sweet spot dishes that fall in that line. That's awesome because there's so many things that go on, that happen on the back end of right. it. And then, uh, the diner gets it and, you know, it looks beautiful and it tastes beautiful. I'm curious about the dropping of plates. Do you explain the dishes to all 12 people in the room or yeah. do you just identify it? Oh, I mean, I mean, it depends on the night and how quickly things are going, how busy Anna is. I mean, there's an occasional time where she'll drop a dish for me if like, I'm like just, you know, kind of a little bit in the weeds in the kitchen because somebody asked me too many questions on the previous table. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people get the vibe when they get in there. They know I'm moving quickly. They know that I won't be available to talk till the end of the meal. Um, but if you get the off chance, a talkative diner and they want to ask you all about the dish, then I'm standing there and she knows to go into the kitchen and grab a plate and go out with it if it's ready. But since I played everything to order, I don't let them sitting in there. So she, sometimes she's standing there waiting for me to come back and plate it so she can take it. So, um, yeah, I am explaining things very minimally the first round. And then after I drop the minority, I tell people I'm available for questions. I go grab my beer and I talk to them if they need to, and they get a copy of the menu at the end to rehash it. So, um, you know, we explain it a little bit. So you worked a lot in restaurants in New York. You opened up your dream restaurant. I'm curious what you have to say to listeners who are batting around an idea in their head, a dream, uh, what is some advice that you would give to them if people have a food concept, mm -hmm. not even necessarily a, a tasting menu? Maybe yeah. it's a coffee shop, but you really went for it and yeah. you and your wife were able to execute it. Uh, curious what some of the pitfalls were that you experienced totally. and if you have any words of wisdom to help people avoid those as they embark on their uh, entrepreneurial dreams of opening up a food space. Um, my first like piece of advice would definitely be low overhead, bottom line. Just don't get yourself into a situation where rent is so high that you have to worry about that. You know, that was the best decision we ever made. I mean, our rent cost less than any of the apartments I've ever had in New York City. So, I mean, that is in itself took all the stress off of our shoulders. We knew within one service, rent was paid for the month. So we didn't have to worry about it. Amazing. And so I would say that's the first thing, even if that means you're going into a slightly different location than you want. Like every location is awesome right now. I mean, all the neighborhoods in Brooklyn are really great. They all have good restaurants opening. So don't you know worry about that. Just find a good location, low overhead and make your special space in there. And people will come to you if it's good. Um, 
and the mistake that we did make was in the beginning, we did take advice from people that didn't fucking know what they were talking about. You know, our parents are not anywhere near in the industry. My dad's an orthopedic surgeon. Anna's mom is like an author and a radio host. Like, no, we shouldn't have taken advice from them. But, you know, in the beginning when you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling nervous and overwhelmed, so quickly people tell you how to do something and you think, okay, that sounds, they sound confident in this. I'm going to go with it. So, you know, be confident in what you know and your own experience and seek out the advice of people who actually might know better um, or have experience in your own industry and that run things in the style that you like. So if you go to a restaurant that you really enjoy the way it's run, the way the staff treats you, the way the food is prepared, go reach out to that chef and be like, even if they're, you know, seemingly, you know, out of reach to you or maybe they seem too, you know, busy or whatnot, make the time because I feel like in this community, in this industry, everyone will make the time for each other and they'll give you advice and help you out. As you embark on the next stage of your life and you're planning on leaving the city, I'm curious, are there any restaurants that you're really going to miss? Is there a couple places that are your favorites that you think uh, do things extremely well at any price point whatsoever and that you feel like that'll be the first place that you kind of shoot back to when you when you come back down into the city? Yeah, um, well, one of my favorite restaurants closed. Two of my favorite restaurants closed already, so that's done. Um, which which one Brucey were those? in our neighborhood. Zara, I love Brucey. Zara's a good she friend of ours. She was my first guest on the show. For real? Yeah. She's great, um, hilarious, and uh, it was our go-to kind of we're feeling low, we're feeling high, didn't matter, we were there. Um, and also we appreciated her friendship and kind of, you know, we always kind of hash things out via text and in the last minute, oh, do you have a refrigerator? Do you have this? Do you need this? And so I always kind of miss that friendship uh, as, you know, another chef in the neighborhood kind of thing. And also her food was just delicious. Um, and then I also really uh, enjoyed Luxus. And um, as I don't really dine out at tasting many restaurants, um, I'm, not, I'm not really into it because I'm like, this is, you know, bores me because I do it every day. But I liked the energy there. And I thought that they also had a kind of a unique setup. Um, the owners of of tourist Yepe and his wife are really great and they're, you know, good friends of ours as well. And they're really sweet. And so I always thought that there was kind of a uniqueness to that, that I will miss as like our special occasion spot kind of. Um, but you know what, honestly, we, we eat at home a lot. Um, and we're really excited about the dining scene upstate and, and kind of being up there and being around our industry friends up there. So, you know, it's all good. So now you get to cook for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for your wife. Yeah, exactly. Well, good luck to you upstate. Thank you so much. Well, obviously, everyone's very excited to see what your next uh, Me too, project <laughs> may be. And now you have some time to kick back and think yeah, about for it. Sure. Congratulations on the four year run of Take Root. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for being me. here on the line. Everyone, please head over to heritageradionetwork.org. There's over 10,000 episodes of content from this show and many others. And if you like what you hear, we are always looking for your assistance. There's a little heart up in the corner if you want to give us a donation so we can keep the great content coming. We would be very appreciative of that. Join me next week on the line, Tuesdays, 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.